We have been in the book of Galatians for um, maybe six or seven weeks now, maybe eight weeks. And hasn't it been amazing? I mean, I have loved going through this book. I mean, at times it feel like, feels like we're getting slapped around a bit. Um, and it, it wants to knock us out of our natural way of thinking. Because grace isn't, doesn't make sense to our natural minds. We live in a world where, you know, you get what you deserve. God helps those who help themselves. And what we are seeing is that because of Christ, the totally undeserving are brought into God's riches and fullness. And uh, it's, it's just, it's been absolutely freeing for me personally to, to study this book in a fresh way. And my goal this morning is that you, everyone here, would leave full of hope and full of joy and full of encouragement in the gospel today. Paul says in Romans 1 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the power of God. We don't need to look for something else. The gospel is God's power. It, it comes to us and frees us from sin and from fear and from the fear of death and from the wrath of God, and from all that can take us down, all that can truly take us down. It frees us from all of it. We have quite a redeemer in Jesus Christ. He he, he saves not partially, but he saves completely. He saves fully. Hebrews chapter 7 says that Jesus Christ is able to save to the uttermost or perfectly those who draw near to God through him. So he is a perfect redeemer. And, that, and therefore, because he's a perfect redeemer, he gets all the glory and we get joy. We get massive, life-expanding, heart-enlargening joy. At the end of the day, there are really only two religions in the world. <clears throat> I, I realize that there are lots of religions in the world, but they fit into one of these two categories. And really, there's only one in one category. The two religions are this. There's the religion of human achievement and there's the religion of divine accomplishment. There's a religion of what man can achieve by himself or what he can do. He can better himself. He can make himself this or that. He can make a name for himself. And then there is the religion of divine accomplishment, what God alone can do. And that is what the, the book of Galatians is all about. It is about... God's accomplishment through Christ. Verse 13 makes clear which message the gospel proclaims. It says it right here. Verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ redeemed us. Doesn't say he tried to. Doesn't say he did it. He did his best. He gave his full effort. It says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That is divine accomplishment. And the gospel comes to us with such power and force that all we can do is respond to it and live in the light of it. Jesus is a wonderful redeemer. Remember what's been going on in the book of Galatians. The occasion which prompted Paul to write this letter to the churches in Galatia is so relevant to us 
because we can fall into the same trap that the believers there did, right? Some, some false teachers came to the churches of Galatia, but it's very interesting because they had very orthodox views about Jesus, very biblical views about Jesus. They believed that he was the eternal God and that he was incarnate, that he became man. They believed that he lived the life that God wanted him to live and died on the cross and rose again and ascended and poured out the Holy Spirit and that he was coming again. They believed all of these things about Jesus. They would have said, or they did say, and they would say to us today too, of course you need to believe in Jesus. They weren't saying, you don't need Jesus, you need something else. They were saying, of course you need to believe in Jesus. But you need something else too. You need Jesus and. You need Jesus and obedience to the law. You need Jesus and what you can add to his work. John Stott explains the false teaching that was going on in the churches of Galatia that Paul comes to correct this way. He says, the false teachers did not deny that you must believe in Jesus for salvation, but they stressed, and note the word stressed, that you yourself must finish by your obedience what Christ has begun. You must add your works to the work of Christ. You must finish Christ's unfinished work. Paul says in Galatians 2.21, we covered this a couple weeks ago, that this, that idea, that thinking is to nullify the grace of God. It is to cancel it out. It is to reject it. It is to push it away. And it is to live as though Jesus died for no purpose. And the relevance for us is that we do this sometimes. Martin Luther said, there's no sin more grievous than to nullify the grace of God, than to say, of course, Jesus died, but I must do these 10 things or these three things in order to gain God's attention and God's favor. We do this. Martin Martin Luther said, there's no sin more grievous, and yet there's no sin more common. Here's the way it works. We we are rejoicing in the grace of God. We're swimming in the ocean of God's grace, enjoying Jesus as our all in all. And then, then for some reason, we feel the need to add to the work of Jesus. Either in our pride, in order to get brownie points with God and put ourselves above others and think we're more spiritual than others, or in fear and guilt not sure that we have done enough to gain God's acceptance. And so Paul looks at some similar truths in this text that we've already looked at up until now, but he looks at it from a bit of a different angle. I don't know if you've been reading, I hope you have been, I don't know if you've been reading through the book of Galatians as we've been going through this, but Paul seems to hit on some similar themes, doesn't he? And I think he does this for some, well, one obvious reason anyways. You know one obvious reason he does this? Because we have bad memories. Well, sometimes we don't, but sometimes we do. We forget. Parents, do our kids forget? Do our kids forget? This isn't a hard question. Our kids forget, right? And God looks down at his children, namely you and I, and he says, and so do you. 
And so I'm going to remind you of these things. I'm going to keep reminding you of some similar truths, some same things, because you also forget. And so at times we rejoice in the grace of God, and then other times we are fearful and anxious and laid down, weighed down with guilt because we know that in ourselves we don't measure up. And so we got to figure this out. But there's another reason why Paul and, and God ultimately give, um, addresses similar truths from different angles. And I think it's to give us a more full picture of the gospel and the riches of the gospel. If you've ever been out to um, Colorado and seen the majestic mountains, and you see this mountain you, and you want to hike up it, well, you know there is a gazillion ways you can get up that mountain. I mean, not safe ways, but there are a million ways you can get up that mountain, right? And the more ways you can climb up that mountain from this angle and then go up this nice, easy path, and then go up this path from this other side, and go, then go to the other side and climb this really steep, maybe not so safe way, you get different views of this mountain that give you a richer picture of what it looks like and, and the landscape of it. And that's what God wants to do for us is he wants to give us a more full and rich picture of the gospel, the mountain summit of the gospel, if you will. Now, these five verses we're going to look at, there, there's no rose-colored way to look at this, a rose-colored glasses way to look at this passage, right? We can't do it. Th- this passage is weighty, and it's full of warning and glory. It is full of strong, sober, warning, and also glory. So let's look at three things as we consider Jesus, our amazing Redeemer. And I want to break it up this way. First, we see big trouble. Hopefully, this will be easy to remember. Big trouble. Then we see big price. And then we see big promise. Big trouble, big price, big promise. First, big trouble. Verse 10. It won't be hard to see the big trouble. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Living a life of self-righteousness and self-justification where we come to God and look for acceptance by God based on our performance puts us under God's curse. That's what it says. When we think of curse, what, what comes to mind? Maybe for some it's this voodoo witch doctor down in New Orleans or in Haiti or something with this little doll that he's poking with a pin, you know, to exact revenge on his enemy. Or maybe someone has in mind an occult witch doctor who's calling down curses on people she doesn't like. Or maybe someone just has more of a naturalistic understanding or, or idea of curse that is kind of more of a natural reaping and, or sowing and reaping. Kind of just the, just the way that things work, karma, if you will. That's what curse is. Paul has in mind that those who live this way, self-righteous, self-justifying, they are under God's curse. 
Not the curse of a voodoo witch doctor. Not the curse of heaping up, you know, what we reap and sow, that sort of, sow and reap, that sort of thing. But under God's curse, where because of one's own actions, we place ourselves underneath the curse of God. Paul, to prove this, quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26. And he says this, listen to these words very carefully. I just read it, but listen again. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now, this is Deuteronomy 27, uh, chapter 27, verse 26. And that's the last verse in, verse in chapter 27. And then chapter 28 is almost 70 verses of God going through blessings for those who obey and curses for those who don't. Let me just give you a, a quick flavor. Starting in, in verse 1 of chapter 28 in Deuteronomy, here's what God is speaking through the through Moses. And if you faithfully obey the, the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then he says this, blessed shall, be, shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the, in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, and the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and when you go out. It says, if you obey everything I've commanded, blessing, 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 right? In your home, in the field, when you come in, and when you go out. But, here's what it says, A bit later, starting in verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and in the field. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock, cursed shall you be when you come in and when you go out. Now, some might say, well, you know what? When I look at the Ten Commandments, which sums up the law, um, I think I can keep those. Really? I'm not so sure. What do we do when Jesus takes the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount? Some might say, I just want to live the Sermon on the Mount life. Well, oh my goodness, because he takes the law to a whole other level in the Sermon on the Mount. He takes the Ten Commandments and he gets to the heart and the spirit of of the law. He goes underneath the surface, the outward external way that we might be obedient to the law. But he says this, he says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say, If you're angry at your brother, you have murdered him. You say, or you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say, if a man looks at a woman with lustful intent, he has committed adultery with her in his heart. And all of a sudden, when I see where Jesus takes the law and gets to the heart and the soul of it, underneath the surface, I realize 
I am undone. I have not kept God's law perfectly for five minutes since I've been born. Now, this is actually obvious for Paul. It's not always obvious for us. It's not obvious for those who want to justify themselves, but it's obvious for Paul. In verse 11, Paul says, Now it is evident that no one will be accepted by God this way. No one will. No one will be justified by God, before, by the law, or before God, by the law. It's evident, it's clear, it's obvious without question. Isn't it? Isn't it? Amen. No one will be acceptable to God in this way. Then Paul gives the reason why it's so obvious. He goes on to say in verse 11, for the righteous shall live by faith. The one who's going to be viewed as righteous before God is not going to be the one who brings all of their good works to God and says, look at what I've done. Will you accept me now? But it is the one who throws all of those aside and comes to God by faith in Christ alone and is counted righteous through faith in Christ. So put negatively, the self-righteous woman or the man who seeks to justify himself is under God's curse because we have to be perfect before God. And the only way to be perfect before God is when we trust in Christ and his righteousness is counted as ours. And we can't add anything to that. How can you? So, what do you say this morning? We just all abandon this project of justifying ourselves once and for all. Let's just throw that aside for good. And let's seek our righteousness outside of ourselves, namely the one that comes through faith in Christ alone. So that's the big trouble. The curse, the curse hovers over all who seek to live before God or justify themselves or live in a self-righteous way. But this text also shows us there's a big price. This is amazing because at one time, you and I, all of us, everyone here at one time was under the curse. Everyone was. But a big price was paid to rescue us from it. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Notice first, it doesn't say simply that Jesus was cursed, but it says he became a curse. Jesus became a curse for us. The one who is the incarnate son of God, right? God put on flesh. At this moment, when he bore the curse for us, he becomes the incarnation of God's divine curse. How can this be? I mean, Jesus lived under the smile of God from all eternity, right? John 17, Jesus is praying with the Father, and he he intimates through his prayer that he has been, he and the Father have been enjoying each other's fellowship 
forever. When Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, what did God do? He sent a host of angels to sing and celebrate the coming of his son into the world. The father loved the son. When Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, he came up out of the water, says the spirit descended on him like a dove. And then this voice was heard from heaven. This is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. Jesus is the one ultimately described in Matthew 5, 8, which says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I mean, Jesus had unfettered fellowship and an unfettered vision of the Father. The Father's face was shining upon his Son, we might say. Jesus was perfectly pure. Nothing separating fellowship between the Father and the Son until until the day when my sin was placed on him on the cross. And your sin was placed on Christ on the cross. And the sin of all of his people They were all placed on Christ on the cross. And Jesus was pure no more. 2 Corinthians 5 says, He who knew no sin became sin. He was pure no more. And God cursed him. God cursed him. It's hard for us to even fathom this, but it does help us understand the agonizing cry of uh, the agonizing cry of Jesus Christ from the cross. You know the cry I'm talking about when he cried out, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" Jesus. Some have some have tried to suggest that Jesus perhaps was having a momentary lapse of judgment and reason in the agony of his pain. Others have suggested from not such a conservative view, have suggested that Jesus thought the father was going to rescue him. And then he realized, oh my goodness, he's not coming. Others suggest that Jesus, knowing that he was fulfilling prophecy, and he was. These words come from Psalm 22, that Jesus thought it'd be a good time to confirm that he's fulfilling this prophecy in Psalm 22. And that's true, he was. I don't think Jesus was in a scripture-quoting mood at that time. Jesus cried out these words because at that moment, he was forsaken by God. He was rejected by the Father. It says in Isaiah 53, it was the Father's will to crush him. Or it was God's will to crush him. Never, ever was there such a concentration of evil 
in one place as there was on that cross as Jesus bore all of your evil and my evil. Habakkuk 1.13 says, You, God, are of purer eyes than to see evil, and you cannot look on wrong. And so, the light of the Father's face was turned away from the Son. There's a, there's a hymn, How Deep the Father's Love. It says the Father turned his face away. And the full force of the curse of God was poured out on Christ. Philip Ryken, in his commentary on Galatians, said, to put it in the most shocking, and it is shocking, and yet perhaps the most accurate way, the apostolic New Testament message was about, was about a God-damned Messiah. Paul says the evidence that Christ was bearing the curse for us was that he was hung on a tree. And he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 21. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And we think about all of the imagery and all of the events of the crucifixion of Jesus. It all indicates that he was enduring, enduring divine curse. He was delivered into the hands of the Gentiles so that rather than being stoned by the Jews, he was executed Roman style on a cross, on a tree. Add to this the astronomical phenomena when at midday, when the Father turns his face from the Son, for three hours, the Son is darkened. Jesus became curse. I don't fully, I don't understand this completely, but I glory in it. I rejoice in it. I know it's true. And it was no accident. Christ did it not for himself. He did it for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We might say, instead of us, in the place of us. It was my sin that held him there. It was my sin that was cursed in Christ. It was my sin that caused God to unleash his judgment on Christ. It was my sin. It was my evil. And it was yours. And yet Christ took it. And so there's really only two ways for us to deal with the curse. Either we will bear it ourselves forever, or we will flee to the one who bore it for us and be free from it forever. There's a hymn, Christ, what burdens bowed thy head. 
And it says these precious words. Listen to these words. Death and curse were in our cup. O Christ, it was full for thee. But thou hast drained the last dark drop, and it's empty now for me. What an enormous price was paid for your redemption. (laughs) It was not some small, cheap, insignificant thing. I mean, think of... Jesus, the eternal Son of God. And we, we've, we've heard stories, many have heard stories of missionaries or even early Christians in the New Testament who go to the stake to be burned or have their heads chopped off with great courage and confidence in the Lord. And yet we see Jesus on the night before his crucifixion. I don't say and yet, but we see Jesus the night before his crucifixion agonizing that he is going to go to a cross the next day. Why is it? It's not because of the physical pain of the cross or the humiliation. It is because he became a curse on the cross for us. Do you realize what Christ paid to redeem you? You were bought at such a high price. Martin Luther commenting on this verse. He said, when we hear that Christ was made a curse for us, listen to this, let us believe it with joy and with assurance. Because if my sins were cursed in Christ, then I will never be cursed for my sins because he took it for me. By faith, Christ changes places with us. He gets our sins and we get his holiness. So we've seen big trouble, the curse, big price. Jesus redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. How about big promise? There's a massive promise promise in this text for us. Verse 14 says that Jesus did this not only to redeem us from the curse, but also to give us something so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Christ purchased blessing. He redeemed us from the curse of the law and he purchased blessing for us. He removed the curse and has earned blessing for us. Only Jesus is worthy of the blessing. Only Jesus is truly worthy of it. Remember the blessings we saw in Deuteronomy 28. Blessed when you you come in and when you go out and in your home and in the field and everywhere. Blessing, blessing, blessing. Who's that for? The person who is completely obedient in everything that God's commanded. Who has done that? Jesus has. And so he is completely worthy of the blessing. The blessing is for Christ and, and, you're like, what about me? And, big and, everyone who has been joined to Christ by faith. The blessing, the full blessing of total peace with God and eternal bliss forever is for Jesus and everyone who is found in him. And that's why Paul says, 
so that this little phrase, in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. So that in him, the blessing of Abraham might come to all the nations. That was the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In Christ, this little phrase, in Christ or in Christ Jesus, is one of Paul's favorite phrases to describe the Christian's reality. Paul uses this phrase over 160 times in his writing. So this is a massive thing for Paul. To be in Christ speaks of our union with Jesus. To be in Christ speaks of our such intimate union like that of a husband and a wife that are made one. We are so connected to Jesus. In fact, the Bible does call the church the bride and Jesus the bridegroom. What happens when a husband and wife come together? They share all things in common for better or worse, right? Now, what do we bring to the table? We bring sin. We bring our our brokenness. And Jesus takes it as his. And what does he bring to the table? He brings grace, mighty power, all forgiveness. He brings full riches, And it becomes ours. It becomes ours in him. Think of it this way. When you believe in Jesus, you change addresses. You go from being in Adam and under God's curse to being in Christ and under the smile of God forever. But when Paul speaks of blessing here, He gets more specific. He says, so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit. So the blessing of God results in you and I receiving the promise of the Spirit. Or think of it this way. I I think we just say that the the blessing is the Holy Spirit. The, The summation of the blessing in this life, in this age is the Holy Spirit coming to us, indwelling us. Now think with me for a moment. What is the greatest gift uh, one person could ever give to somebody else? Themselves. Themselves. What's the greatest thing God could give us? Himself. Himself. Husbands, think, if your wives gave you almost everything, right? They made your favorite meals and they did all sorts of things for you. They gave you these things, but they withheld themselves from you. She withheld herself from you. She would be withholding her best from you. And wives, if your husband gave you everything, right? Gave you the house you wanted and took you on vacations and new car, everything you Materially, you could want, and children, and all the rest, but he kept back himself. He is not giving you what is most precious about him. God gives us the greatest gift he could ever give us by giving us himself, present with us with unlimited power. 
God gives you the greatest gift, namely, he gives you himself as fountains of living waters dwelling within you, right? Jesus said in John 7, if anyone's thirsty, he doesn't say, I'll, uh, I'll give him a good vacation. He says, no, come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, out of his heart will flow life-giving waters, like rivers. And then it goes on to say that Jesus was speaking about the Holy Spirit who had not yet been poured out because Jesus at that time had not yet been glorified. John chapter 16, Jesus is with his disciples and he's been telling them he's going away and they don't quite understand and probably like we wouldn't have understood. And and they are filled with doubts and fears. And Jesus says something amazing. He says, guys, it's actually better that I'm going away. It's actually better for you that I don't stick around and continue to walk by your side and you walk by my side. It's actually better for you that you can't look to your right or to your left and see my face in the, right here in the flesh. It's actually better for you. Huh? He says, if I don't go away, then I won't send the helper. Then I won't send the spirit. Jesus stunningly is saying it's better for the spirit to dwell in you than to have me walk beside you. The Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1 is spoken of as the down payment of our full inheritance. Here's what Paul says. In Christ, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There's that phrase, promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It says guarantee or down payment. The Holy Spirit has been given to us as a guarantee, as a down payment of the full inheritance that we will acquire at some time in the future when Jesus returns. The Holy Spirit was called the promise in another place. You might remember this on the day of Pentecost. G, or not Jesus, Peter. Well, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's poured out on the 120 in the upper room. And, and some amazing things begin to happen. And there's this great commotion and a great crowd of people gather around. And Peter gets up and starts preaching. And here's what Peter says in verse 35 and 39. He says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And then he says, The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, when we, when we consider all that we've seen about this promise of the Spirit, life-giving waters, that it's better for us to have the Spirit dwelling in us than Jesus walking beside us, that he is the promise of the Father, one thing is clear. This is more than just a doctrine to be believed. It is a reality to be experienced and known. Of course, we must believe the doctrine. 
we must be clear-headed about the truth of the Holy Spirit, the work of Jesus. We must be. But it is a reality that we are called into to experience. Reality with the risen Christ through the Spirit. And how does Paul say we receive this promise? Now, do we, do we grit our teeth for this one, this promise? Does it come through our great effort? No. It comes through faith. Faith plus works? Faith alone. Faith alone in Jesus Christ. Again, Martin Luther says this. I love this quote from Luther. He says, The Spirit spells freedom from the law, from sin, from death, from the curse, from hell, and the judgment of God. No merits are mentioned in connection with this promise of the Spirit and all blessings that go with Him. The Spirit of many blessings is received by faith alone. Now, by by faith alone, this moment, by faith alone, we walk in the Spirit. We, We receive the Spirit by faith alone. Faith, Luther says, builds on the promises of God. By faith, filling our minds with what Christ has done, counting Jesus as our perfect Redeemer who has earned everything for us who has redeemed us from the curse of the law so that we might inherit a blessing from God and the blessing preeminently in this life being the Holy Spirit. The more you turn away from yourself and your efforts and fix your gaze on Christ, your perfect Redeemer, the more full of the Holy Spirit and full of joy and full of faith you will be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your son at such great cost to himself became a curse to redeem us from the curse so that we might be blessed forever in him. God, may we, each one of us, abandon our own self-salvation projects and just jump on this train that leads to eternal glory. God, may we abandon our attempts to bring God our goodness, our goodness, and say, will you accept me now? May we abandon our pride and our fear and anxieties and trust in Christ alone. And Father, today I pray for a fresh outpouring of your Spirit, a fresh receiving of your Spirit here in this place by all those who are believing, who are believing, who have the great privilege because of Christ's finished work to receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, massive grace, the love of God the Father, massive love, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You're dismissed.